Good afternoon. If you'd like to take your Bibles out to follow along, I would encourage you to turn them to the Old Testament, the book of Obadiah. Obadiah. I'll be spending a little bit of time there in just a moment. Give you time to search out this oft-overlooked book um, while you're turning there. Uh, how good it is to see each and every one of you. How good it is to see you in a dry building on a wet day. I am so thankful for this rain. I was talking to our neighbor last night. She said, I've been praying that the rain would not, that it would not rain for the last three weeks because they've been working on a camper trying to fix it and they didn't want rain to come in. And I thought, you stop that. <laughs> I'm going to tell all the farmers where you live. I'm so very thankful that we finally got some rain. hope that it continues on and praise God for that. Obadiah is a fantastic book. And I am very, very thankful to be able to spend some time studying from it. Uh, as we have already hit some of the other prophets, I, I hope to spend more time in the minor prophets. We are woefully neglecting them by and large in, in our studies. It, it is not uncommon for people to, when you bring up the minor prophets, say, oh, I know where they are sometimes, if I can remember the song in the Old Testament, but what they're actually about, I, I can't really tell you. Uh, and maybe it's because of the name that's affixed to them, minor, as in that is a minor task or uh, of minor importance that could not be farther from the truth. The only reason these are referred to as the minor prophets is due to the length of these books. And even then, sometimes these books rival some of the major prophets. Daniel is only 12 chapters long, uh, and there are a handful of the minor prophets that exceed that. But the the importance of these books and the value of these books today is immense, and we do well to spend more time studying from them. So I want to get into the book of Obadiah. We're going to read the entire thing tonight, all 21 verses of it. It's only one chapter, but uh, I think sometimes because of the shortness of this book, it's easy to read it and say, well, that's interesting, and go on and forget that there is a lot of really good information that is revealed to us in Obadiah. The book starts off, before we go very far into it, uh, revealing to us that this is a vision of Obadiah. Now, one thing that's interesting about this book is there's no introduction to it. If you'll remember in our study from Amos, Amos chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of Amos, who was among the sheep herders of Tekoa, or sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, Two years before the earthquake. That's a great introduction because it tells us a little bit about who Amos was, when he lived, where all this is taking place. There is no introduction in the book of Obadiah. The, 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 only, ver, the, the only form of an introduction we get is the very first part of verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. And that makes it kind of hard to figure out you know, really who wrote the book and when was the book written. We have to look within to find some of these things. So it's pretty obvious that the, that the writer of the book was probably this man referred to as Obadiah. His name means worshiper or servant of Yahweh. But actually nailing down when the book was written is a harder task. Uh, we have to look at some of the things that he talks about to figure out what's going on. And one thing that oftentimes comes up is this is very obvious. He's talking about the, the nation of Edom. We'll talk about them and who they are in a moment. But Edom has been a problem in Jerusalem's side, a thorn in their side, on more than one occasion. And so it becomes clear that they have done something here to the, the Jews of, of Judea. Uh, 
But exactly when was that? So there was a time in the days of uh, David that, that they rose up and they rebelled, and we'll look at that in a moment. But it's much more likely this is referring to something that happened near the end of the nation's history, uh, uh, the time of, of Judah as a nation. When Babylon comes in, Edom is there, and they're going to be a problem for, Judy, uh, for Judah at that time. And so it's very likely this book was written sometime around 605 to 586 B.C. These are the time periods when Nebuchadnezzar was attacking Judah. And that would also mean that this book, uh, written by Obadiah, is probably a book that is contemporary to prophets like Jeremiah, maybe even Ezekiel. They probably lived at the same time, saw a lot of the same things, maybe even knew each other. Um, we also need to note, as I've already pointed out, that this is the very shortest book of the, uh, of the Old Testament. This is uh, a mere 21 verses, and it circulates a message, as I said, that is of great importance to us. So why don't we jump in to the first four verses, and we'll talk about what those, uh, what's being said here in this vision that Obadiah receives. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. So verses 1-4 through four starts off with this interesting thing. Let us rise up against her for battle. And it's it's interesting because God is sharing this, this vision with Obadiah to the nation of Edom. And he says, this is what the Lord is saying concerning Edom. And then you have this kind of parenthetical statement. We have heard a report from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations saying, arise and let us rise up against her for battle. And so have you ever heard something secondhand about you that's being circulated, being said? You know, think about it, if somebody was to come up to you to, this morning at service and say, you got a little something in your teeth, your breakfast, there's a little bit of something of your breakfast left in your teeth. Um, and you say, well, well, thank you. And they say, well, yeah, I know because everybody here is talking about it. Everybody here is saying, look at Kyle, look at the food that's stuck in his teeth. And I just figured, you would be like, well, how is this being said behind my bag? Why, why isn't anybody coming to me? That's kind of what happens here. They start this message off with, do you know what the word is going around about you? said, God's raising up an army, and He's coming for you, and you're going to go down. That's what's happening. He's telling him, them, the message or the nations around you is, I've rallied the troops, and we're coming for you. Now, this would have been interesting to, to the Edomites because they were friends of the nations around them. Their real enemy is Israel, Judah. That's the people they don't like. They have made acquaintances with lots of the nations around them and have even bragged and boasted in how that made them secure. They look at, at Babylon over here, Syria over here, and they say, we're, we're in with these guys. We have nothing to worry about. Nobody can touch us. And that leads us to answer the question whenever God says, I'm coming for you, and they say, why? Because of your arrogance. That's all verses 2-4 through four is detailing. It's because you are so proud, so puffed up. That's why I'm coming for you, Edom. And maybe this will be a good time for us to stop before we go any further into the book and examine the question then, who is Edom? Who is he talking about? What are these people? Who are they? Where do they come from? 
The Edomites are descendants of Esau. And if you go back to Genesis 25, Genesis 25 details the birth of this nation as uh, uh, this nation's father. The birth of this nation's father. We find in Genesis 25, Isaac is pleading to God because of his wife, Rebekah. She has, is, is barren and he's pleading to God, give her a child. And God hears their prayers and they are with child. She becomes pregnant. And then something strange starts happening. She starts to... There's complications with the pregnancy. She feels these children that are fighting. It says they're struggling in the womb. And you note her prayer to God. She goes, this, this is strange. I have to talk to God. But when, the way she describes that is she says, if all is well, if everything is okay, then why am I like this? And that, what that tells us then is this isn't just normal conflict going on. This isn't just, you know, the, the babies are kicking the kidney. There's something strange happening inside of her womb, so much so that she says, I got to go to talk to God about this. I need answers. And so she goes to God confused, and here's God's response. Verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So that's what God says. This is why this is going on. This, this strife and this contention uh, that, that's going on in your womb, it's not going to end anytime soon. It's going to become these two nations and they're going to they're be in conflict with one another. There's going to be one serving the younger one and there's going to be one that's shown to be stronger than the other one. And, in, and almost immediately in 20, chapter 25, we see this start to come true we start to see that there is a contentious brotherhood being birthed here. So you have in verses 29 through 34 the account of Esau, the older son, who treats his birthright, that large portion of the inheritance that belongs to him, as, that is the glory of being the older son. You receive this great honor, and he treats it with contempt, and he sells it for a bowl of red stew. And verse 30 reveals his words there. It says, Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. This is the beginning of the Edomites. The Edomite people are born out of this man Esau, or as he's later known, Edom. And now when we taught this to the kids in the children's class, whenever I was teaching this in there, I taught them to remember, when you, who are the Edomites? How do you remember who that is? How do you go back and, and draw that, their, their name? How did they get their name? I taught them to remember. They got their name because Esau eat them up all the stew. And maybe if that can help them remember it, it can help you to remember it too. The Edomites come from Esau. And now Esau's name is changed to Edom, and he is the father of the Edomites. Genesis 36 goes on to help us see this. And I want you to think about this. If you're not turned over there, turn over to Genesis 36. Because it's going to become very clear here where Edom comes from. But there's also another detail that's made important here before we go on in Obadiah. Genesis 36.1 says, This is the genealogy of Esau. Who is Edom? Genesis 36 verse... Did I write that down right? Verse 8. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. So, one... Don't forget who the father of the Edomites is. He's making this very clear here. God is saying this over and over and over again. It's Esau. Esau is Edom. Edomites came from Esau. But also, where did they reside? Mount Seir. 
That's going to become important later. This, they, they reside on, the, on, on Mount Seir. They reside in the hill country. But it's verse 31 that I want you to think about. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Who became a nation first? Edom. Long before the Israelites were a nation, Edom was planting the seeds of a nation. They had kings. They were establishing themselves. They are rising to power and striving to become a great nation. We need to remember. We need to remember all of this because it's going to come into play in the book of Obadiah. God has said here in these first four verses, if we remember back in Obadiah, I'm going to make you small among the nations. And he says, I'm going to do this because you've become proud and you've become arrogant. Why? Because you dwell in the mountains. Specifically, he brings that up. You dwell in the clefts of the rock, Mount Seir. They dwell up in this hill country and they think, who can possibly harm us? The defenses of our nation are unstoppable. And plus, on top of all that, they have developed these relationships we're going to find later on in the chapter with the people around them. So they're saying, we have nothing to worry about. Kind of sitting back with their arms crossed saying, I don't have to be afraid of anybody. And you know, at first you think, well, what's so wrong with that? What's so wrong with being comfortable in your country? And I don't think that's really the problem. That's just what starts the problem. That's why God's going to leave this and go on to the real problem. What that did, that arrogance in them, caused them to think like this. If I don't have anybody to be afraid of, I can do whatever I want. I can be whatever I want to be. I can act however I want to act. And that's exactly how they start to behave. They start to show the world and, and all the people around them, we're untouchable. So we'll just do whatever it is we want. And it leads to some terrible, terrible things, this false sense of security they had. And so their attitude is, who can come against us? And God's answer is me. <laughs> I can come against you. And in fact, I'm going to come against you. Let's read through verses 5 through 9. He says, if thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen until they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Timon, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. So this is where God, as we, as we get into this, this very arrogant people, this is where God shifts and He says, this is how I'm going to do this. This is how I'm going to bring judgment upon this people. I'm going to judge them first off completely. I'm going to completely judge them. Do you notice there in verse 5, he says, if thieves were doing this, if it was robbers, wouldn't they just steal until they got everything they wanted? You'd probably have, you know, it's, it's unlikely that someone breaks in your house and they steal everything. I mean, they, they, they take your TV and they take your couch and they take your bed and then they open up the, the dresser drawers and take your clothes and then they get into the sink and they take all that garbage under the sink. No, they're going to grab a few things and they're going to be gone. Oh, this is what we came for. Let's go. God is saying, wouldn't that be how it was if it was robbers or if it was gleaners? If it was the grape gleaners, they'd come, but they'd leave a little bit for you. 
Not so with me. Not so with me. He says the hidden treasures will be sought after. And what he's telling them is nothing escapes my judgment. Nothing has escaped his sight. He has seen everything that they have been doing. They may think they're hidden up on the mountain doing the things they're doing. He says, no, I've seen it all, and you're going to have to give an account. That's the exact same phrase that Hebrews 4.13 uses. All things are naked and open to him to whom we must give an account. And we're seeing that in Edom. They're going to have to give an account for what they're doing, and there is nothing to give. There's no reason for their attitude, and God is not going to come up short in his judgment on them. But he also says it's not just going to be a complete judgment. I'm going to use your allies against you. The things that you've placed comfort in, the places that, things that you've taken your security and your trust and turned it into, I'm going to turn it against you. Notice what he says. The men in your confederacy, the men, they, they, had, they had made this, this band of people that we can trust these nations around us. These are where our trust lies. The men who are at peace with you, those who eat your bread... All of this describes familiar relationships. And God is saying these familiar relationships that you have built up, that your trust is in, they're going to be your downfall. And again, we're told why. Why is all this happening? Why is God, as verse 10 says, at the end, or verse 9, I should say, why is God going to cut them off by slaughter? It is not because... He is a vengeful, hate-filled God, as many in the world would have you to believe. Well, this is just another example of the God of the Old Testament being the big bully in the sky versus the God of the New Testament, which is all about love and all about caring and, and healing people. That's not what's going on here. This is not done arbitrarily. And to find that out, we need to continue reading. So let's look at verses 10 through 16. He says, For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother, in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction." Nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped. Nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. 5 through 9 tells us how God's going to do it, but what's really important is the focus on 10 through 16, because here He's telling us why. Why God justifies Himself, as if He actually had to, he didn't really have to. He didn't even have to give us the how. He didn't even have to tell them that it was coming. But He tells them that this judgment is coming. He tells them how it's going to happen. And now He gives them the reason for it, telling them why. And the heart of the reason, if you remember, is because they are marked with arrogance, especially when it comes to this brother nation. Edom is the brother nation, descendants of Abraham. And Israel is right there beside them. 
And so they look at their brother nation, Israel, and they want to be better than them. They think that they are better than them. We've, we've become the best nation descended from Abraham, and that's made them prideful, and it's led them to commit these terrible acts. And that's what verse 10 begins with. He says, For violence against your brother Jacob. Now, I believe that oftentimes we, we read this, many commentators will take you straight back to, to Genesis, to the Genesis account. Um, and I don't think that's wrong. Because this is obviously looking back to Esau and his desire to kill Jacob. If you remember the story, Jacob tricks Esau, or he, he, he takes Esau's birth inheritance. Sells, Esau sells it to him, but, but Jacob gets the, the, the birthright. And then he also tricks their father into giving him the blessing. And so he's taken everything from Esau. And this makes Esau angry, and Esau hated his brother, and he wanted to kill his brother. And so he has to actually run away to, so he doesn't lose his life. And you know what? That's wrong. <laughs> Children, I want you all to listen to me very closely. It is wrong to want to kill your sibling. Don't let hate lead you to that point. Don't let hate lead you to, to look at this. Oh, I'm, just, I'm so tired of what my brothers are doing. It's so annoying, the things that they're saying. And I just think I'm going to kill them. That's Cain and Abel. And God is watching those things. Now you think, well, duh. It's wrong to want to kill your brother. But that's just the beginning. You think, well, that's got to be the end. It doesn't get worse than wanting to kill somebody. That's just the beginning of what this nation is turning to and turning into. It started with the hate of two siblings, one sibling towards the other, that led him to want to kill them and ultimately breeds, it, it causes this nation to arise that is just bitter and hate-filled and spewing out terrible things from amongst them. It is wrong, but we need to see that it's the attitude that everything got started. Turn over to Ezekiel 35. As I told you, these are, these are very likely, um, possibly contemporary, very likely written very close to one another. And in Ezekiel 35, Ezekiel's still talking about Edom. And I want you to think about what he says here about Mount Seir. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. This is verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it, and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you most desolate. I shall lay your cities waste, and you shall be desolate. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now he's going to say, this is similar to what he's saying to them now in Obadiah, but he's going to give them the why here as well. Because, verse 5, you have had an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity when their iniquity came to an end. Edom's arrogance has led to this wicked behavior in them that Ezekiel describes as an ancient hatred. They hated the Israelites. They hated this brother nation. In Numbers 20, verses 14 through 20, as the Israelites have left Egypt and they're marching uh, on their way to the promised land and they come to the nation of Edom and they're on the king's highway and they say, we want to pass through your land. And they write a letter to the kings of Edom and the response is, I don't think so. And so they write back and say, well, look, we won't even get off the highway. 
We're not going to take anything from your land. We're, uh, we're, we're going to do everything we can to try and keep all the animals. We, we may have to feed them and water them, but we're not taking anything from you. And the reply comes back again. Come into my land. I'll kill you. That's the attitude of Edom. Come into my land. I'm waiting for you with a sword. In fact, they come to them with the sword and try to kill some of the Israelites because they are emphatic. You're not coming into my land. That's how much they hated this people. In 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 20, Verses 20-22, through 22, it details the revolt. Once Judah has become a nation, they've, they've got into the promised land, and, and now they, Edom revolts against them and fights back against them. And in 2 Chronicles 28, 16-17, we find that they even defeat some of Judah's cities. They take them captive. They, they take people away from Judah. Now, granted, this is done as punishment. God says, because of the sins of King Ahaz, I've raised up Edom, and they're working as his instrument of judgment. But God is watching them at the same time. He sees their hearts. He sees the hatred that they have for this people that began so many years ago between brothers and now has festered into this. But most of this is judgment for what takes place at the fall of the kingdom. Most of the things we read are what takes place when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and starts to dismantle what is left of Judah. And that's recorded again for us in Psalm 137. If you want to flip over there, I think it's really interesting that we kind of get this mindset that who wrote the Psalms? Well, David, David wrote the Psalms. And so most of the, the Psalms are all about things that happened during the kingdom uh, of, uh, of Israel. It's not true. This is a psalm of lament written after Judah falls. This is a song of lament written by captives of Babylon. Listen to what it says. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. And for, those, for there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget His skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to, my, to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, we have to see this, the, the, the pain in this song. I have been, I've been ripped out of my home. I've been taken away from the presence of God. And the people that are doing it now say, hey, sing us a song from, from Zion. Sing us a psalm from your promised land that you were evicted from. How hard and painful that must have been. But, but then read verse 7. Their brother nation was there. They say, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes you and dashes your little ones against the rocks. Listen to what they're saying there. Maybe my translation says, raise it, raise it. The good news, or the good God's word translation says, translates that from raise it to tear it down. Tear it down. They are there at the fall of Jerusalem, the brother nation, and what are they doing? They're screaming, destroy it. Painful it must have been for them to endure this. And I want to bring this into our context. I want to bring this into our lives for a moment and suggest, I want to suggest 
that this would be similar to England coming over at 9-11. At a time when we were vulnerable, at a time when we are heartbroken, at a time when we have been hit by this, this huge blow and so many people have been murdered and they come over and they're not here to help. They're here to shout, do it again! Get them, every one of them. Don't stop until you tore all the buildings down, until you've killed all the people. Because that's what's happening here. In their time of need, their brother nation comes across to spit on them. Edom was on the other side of the Jordan. They come across to spit on them, to help their assailants beat them and kill them. In fact, when you go back to Obadiah, what does he say in verse 12? He says, during this time you went into Judah and you gazed. Or maybe your version says gloated. They were making fun of them during this time as all of this was happening. Verse 13 talks about how they were were stealing from them in their their days of of calamity. They laid hands on their substance. They were looting their houses as they were being dragged out of them. Here comes Edom. Not going to need this anymore, are you? Because you're going off to be a captive. Not me. I'm still free. Verse 14 says, even those who managed to escape, those who got out of the city, Edom was there to kill them or to capture them and turn them into Nebuchadnezzar, into Babylon. That's hate. They hated this people. And this is why God is judging them. And now maybe we see this is definitely not a big bully in the sky. This is a fair judge. And so often people make a judgment on God by only reading part of a story. God was going to kill the Edomites. He was going to doom them to slaughter. God raised the Edomites up before His own chosen people. They were a kingdom long before Israel was. God used Edom to correct His people whenever they sinned. Over and over again, God is doing these great things for Edom. And how are they treating Him? By hating His people. By harming His people. As He describes to, to the Pharaoh, Israel is My son. They're doing these things to His son. God is completely just. Not that He needs us to try and justify Him, but completely just in His actions. He has been patient with His people and He has loved this people, but enough is enough. And the day of the Lord is coming. The day of judgment being poured out on a people, it is coming, it is near, and they are about to experience it. And it will be as if they never were when God gets done. And so let's read the rest of the message. Um, and, and make some closing remarks. Uh, verse 17, But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, there shall be holiness, the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowlands shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. As far as Zarephath, the captives of Jerusalem are in Sepharad. They shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. 17-21 through closes this account with a picture of victory. There's going to be a final victory. And it's not going to be Edom on top. 
It's going to be Israel. And I want you to notice something in these verses. There is no mention, there is no mention of Judah. And the only mention of Israel is in a certain context, and it's important for that to be noticed and noted. He talks about the house of Jacob. He talks about the the children of Israel in verse 20. But there's no talk of Israel and no talk of Judah. And that's because he is going back to a time before a political nation. He is going back to original covenants that God made, not with political nations, but with families and fathers. The house of Jacob will possess the possessions of Edom. And he says, Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame, but Esau will be stubble. i tell you right now, that picture is probably pretty evident to us with the drought that we have had. It seems like every time I turn around, somebody else is getting in trouble for violating a fire ban and, and burning up a whole big section of ground. But have you ever done that? Have you ever held a match to something like a piece of dry hay or straw? You just know what happens? I know what happens. There was a time when I was a child that me and my brother went out to strike matches blow them out and throw them down because apparently that's what we did. That's how we amused ourselves. So I remember us sneaking out of the house. We had that little box of like 250 mac- matches. I mean, this is a whole afternoon for us. So we've got all these matches. We sneak out. Mom and Dad don't know where we are. And we hide ourselves behind a hay bale so that nobody can see us. And we're just there striking them, blowing them out and throwing them down. And this was just our, our evening of fun. And I don't remember who did it. Probably me. But I really don't remember who did it. But in the course of this, one of us struck a match, didn't blow it out, and jammed it in that hay bale. I guess thinking that that would somehow put it out. It didn't. It caught the hay bale on fire. Um, Fortunately for us, we were near a body of water, and so we were able to run down and grab handfuls of water and run back and throw it on it and get it put out before it caught the whole bale on fire. I think what we were more afraid of is before Mom and Dad found out what we were doing, But we very very vividly realized how scary it can be for fire to come near anything as dry as stubble, as hay that has just been all the moisture has dried out of it. That's the picture he points up here. He says Esau is going to be like dry hay. And yes, Israel looks like it's about to go out. Israel is smoldering right now. They are just barely hanging on. There is not much of a flame left, but he says it is a fire. And Joseph will be aflame. He says they are going to roar back. They are going to rage back and they are going to burn bright again. But Edom, you're going to be ashes. You are done. And he gives all this information about lands and locations. And it's so easy. It is so easy for us to say, well, that must be prophecies that still need to be fulfilled And thus Israel has to be a a nation and all of these premillennialistic doctrines that can come from this. And I want you to remember on this, we're not talking about political nations here. He is specifically referencing families. He's going back to covenants and to promises. And yes, some of these things are going to come true. In fact, 70 years later, Israel is going to come back from this captivity that they're in and possess all of these lands. 
And they're even going to become a semi-real nation again as they're going to have kings placed over them. Yes, under the control of other empires. Rome is going to be in control, but we're going to have the kingdom of Herod, the the Herodian dynasty. These things are going to happen that is going to fulfill. And I use that in quotes. It's going to fulfill a lot of this, but we have to remember that's not the point of this. He's not talking about political nations here. What he's talking about is something that is being fulfilled today and will be fully fulfilled in the future. And to see that, to recognize that, I want you to focus on the very last phrase of verse 21. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's the kingdom that is going to come out of all this. Not the kingdom of the Jews. No political Judah or Israel or even a recombining of them. God's kingdom is going to come out of what He's about to do, of what's about to happen. And some five to six hundred years later, that kingdom gets established in 33 AD with the death and resurrection of its King, Jesus Christ. And I want you to think, what had Jesus been telling the people in His ministry? What did He come on the scene speaking over and over again? The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He said that I come and the kingdom is near, it's close. And so He came to establish and final victory awaits the household of Jacob. And so what that means then is that the household of Jacob in which God is a covenant with, in a covenant with, in which God views as His own Son, it existed then and it still exists today. It has a kingdom. And one day, it's going to inhabit a land promised to it by God. And all of this is foreshadowing the church, but it's ultimately foreshadowing heaven. And now as we go back into history, we find that God was completely faithful to His Word. Edom fell, and His kingdom arose. So you can believe today that He was faithful in that. He will continue to be faithful to His Word today. So let me just make one word in closing about all this. Because last time I studied through this, a question was asked, and I believe it was a very good question. And that is, what's the point of Obadiah being recorded? I think, well, Why not? But it was a good question. Why did the Jews save this book? A book not written to Jews. A book written to Gentiles, to the Edomites. It's not written to the Jewish nation. So why did they decide to save this book? Well, for one, I believe they decided to save it because it talks about the overthrow of their enemy. God says, I'm going to overthrow Edom. And then God does overthrow Edom. And then He says, I'm going to restore you. And then they are restored in many ways. So why not keep a record of that? But I believe there is a much better reason for why this is recorded. Because it's the inspired Word of God. And the inspired Word of God is applicable to teach and to reprove and to admonish. And we need the book of Obadiah today as much as we ever needed it as the people of God and also as the people of a political nation like America. I mentioned 9-11 earlier. And I imagine everyone remembers that day. 
Even those that weren't alive that day probably have heard quite a bit about it. You remember that day. Who remembers the day that the mastermind of that terrible event was brought to justice? It's May 2nd, 2011. Now, I don't remember the date. I had to look that up. But I remember the day. I remember the day vividly. I remember the day because I walked into work. And mind you, keep in context, this is, I, I worked for the Department of Defense. I worked with people who had worked with the military, supported the military, done things for the military all their life for some of them. I walk into work that day and it's a buzz. I mean, there, there is, you could feel it. As I opened those doors into our office, I could just feel the excitement and people were running around from here to there. And you could just tell as you walk, it's like something has happened. And it's, everyone just was, seemed so excited and happy. I thought something good has happened. And so I grabbed the guys that ran by and I said, what's going on? His words were, you haven't heard? They got him. They got him. They killed that. And he went into a tirade to describe Osama bin Laden is dead. And I felt a very complex surge of emotions at that moment. I was relieved that this evil, wicked-minded man, I was relieved that he could no longer plan to do things like he had done in the past. And I felt that there were many people in the world that were probably far safer than they had been when he was alive at that moment, because of what those Navy SEALs had done. I was relieved, and I felt that we were probably safer. And I felt terrible. How can I rejoice? How can I rejoice in the death of someone who God created? I want to tell you what I also heard later that day. As I went about my day, trying to do the things that I needed to do, I overheard a, a coworker of mine. He said, I wish, I wish they hadn't dumped his body at sea. He said, that way we could have paraded him around for the piece of trash that he was. The hatred of Edom still infects the hearts and minds of men today. We still live in arrogance. We still live in pride. We still gaze and we gloat at the expense of others. And as much as I hate it, as much as I hate it, we are guilty. We are still guilty of taking part and bringing pain into other people's lives who are trying to escape. And I'm not just talking about politically. I'm talking about the church. We look at ourselves and say, look at us. Who can possibly do anything against us. And Romans 8 tells us that's true. If Christ is on my side, who can do anything to me? But then you have people that are just trying to get away from the torment of sin in their life and they don't know what to do and they don't have the answers right and they come into a church looking uh, immodest and they come into a church filled with problems and we say, don't get close to me. I pray that we never here at Lake Street exhibit the attitudes of Edom. I pray that we fight against that. But I pray we also recognize just how alive that attitude is 
And I want you to know that it's best depicted. It is best depicted in God's Word. We just finished studying about it. The trial and the death of Jesus. And I want you to just imagine the things that are said of Edom and how they treated their brother nation that God tells Pharaoh, Israel is my son. I want you to think about those words as we finish this up. Jesus' life is marked with companions who deserted Him, even those who ate bread with Him. His confederacy of people that He was at peace with, one of which turned Him over and delivered Him to His death. His brothers, the people that He belonged to, they didn't just approve of this. They cried out. And I want you to remember what He said. He said, this temple will be torn down and in three days rebuilt. And He talked about His body. And as he stood before Pilate, and Pilate says, what do I do? His own brethren shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. We could go ahead and just substitute those words. Raise him, tear him down, destroy him. And before we get upset at them, the book of Romans reveals that's us. We have all sinned. All of us are to blame for his death. Sometimes it's said, and I recently heard it said this way, and I really, I really appreciated the guy that said this. He said, he came and lived the life that I couldn't to die the death that I deserved. I belonged on that cross. I belonged in his place. But there was nothing meaningful with my sacrifice. I had nothing to offer God. And in a time when I could offer him nothing, in a time when I deserved to be killed by Him, God sent His Son to die for me. To establish His kingdom. To allow me to become a part of that kingdom and inherit the promised land of God. A place where God and His people will reside together in eternity and there will be no more Edoms. There will be no more hate. There will be no more darkness and Babylon and all of these things that threaten. will be gone forever. And so, what we learn from the story of Edom... What we learn from the family feud that's going on between these nations is that the attitudes aren't dead, but the victory is available. Would you like to be a part of that kingdom? When Jesus left, He commanded His disciples, tell the world about the kingdom. Tell the disciples about what I have... Or tell the world about what I have done and tell them how to be brought into that kingdom through the blood of My sacrifice. And so that's the message we bring to you today. If we can assist you in coming to Christ today, won't you please let it be known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.